loves rewords. And in case you haven't noticed throughout the service, I think we've at least spoken about a half a dozen of those rewords in the various confessions and liturgies that we use this morning. But we're going to focus in on one this morning, uh, the word reconciliation. And we've used that word a couple times this morning, sung about it. And uh, if you turn with me, please, to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 11 through 21, that'll be our text for this morning. We'll be focusing particularly on verses 18 through 21, but I'll read the entire section. Hear the word of God. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others, but what we are, what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us, so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of God controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the ministry of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word. And as has been prayed earlier, we pray, Lord, that we would not only be those who hear it, but we'd be those who understand, and through the work of your Spirit, that we would be those who live it and act it out in the world, that your kingdom might come, and that your will might be done on earth as it is in heaven. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Have you ever stopped to think about how many re-words there are in the English text of the Bible? Redemption, renew, repent, restore, resurrection, reconciliation, regeneration. In his recent book, Restoring All Things, God's audacious plan to change the world through everyday people, John Stone Street writes, Rewords have to do with returning something, a person, a relationship, a project, a universe, to its original intended state. For example, Scripture uses a word like reconcile to describe how the relationship between God and people is made right again. But it also uses that word to describe what we are to be, to be doing in our lives. We are reconciled to become reconcilers. That's Paul's focus in this section of his message to the Corinthian church. As Scott Hafeman observes, 
in seeking to persuade the troubled church in Corinth of his legitimate and apostolic ministry, Paul pens one of the most profound statements of the gospel found anywhere in the New Testament. And through the Spirit's illuminating work, Paul's words challenge us to remember that God reconciles us in Christ so that we might be, be participants in his great reconciling work in the world. And that's the theme. I'm going to say it to you one more time so you kind of get it. That God reconcile us, reconciles us in Christ so that we might be participants in the great reconciling work in the world. For those of you taking notes, we're going to examine Paul's thinking by considering three things this morning. First, that God reconciled the world to himself in Christ. Second, that Christ has entrusted the ministry of reconciliation to us. And third, the ministry of reconciliation is personal with universal impact. So we begin with the foundational truth that God reconciled the world to himself. That's just one of those things that you say and you sing sometimes that you don't even really realize what it really means or how deep it truly runs. I don't know about you, I do it all the time. I sing something and I say, well, yeah, God reconciled the world to himself, but what does that mean? What does it really mean to me as an individual? The, world, the word reconciliation assumes that there's a state of conflict or enmity that exists between God and the world, does it not? Otherwise, there wouldn't be any need for a word like reconciliation. The semantic root of the word of the text, translated as reconciliation, it has the idea of restoring a relationship to change from enmity or conflict to friendship to make or negotiate peace. But Paul gives the word a distinct theological meaning in this text in Corinthians, using it to refer to the reconciliation of God with sinful and self-centered people through the death and resurrection of Christ. That's the heart of the gospel for Paul. It's the heart of his apostolic proclamation of the good news. In the pagan religions of Paul's day, Maybe you could say that in our own day, too, even if there may not be pagan in the sense they were in Paul's day. Men and women try to appease and reconcile with God or with the deity through their own works and offerings. Isn't that kind of what every religious theology, basically, other than Christianity, is all about? Somehow, we've got to find a way to appease a God we know is not all that happy with us. Because inside, we know, because Romans tells us that inside of us, we all have a conscience that tells us and I don't know about you, but when I was a non-believer, I had it. And it's one of the things that God used to draw me to himself. But in, in many ways, apart from the gospel, that's what people try to do. They try to appease God through their own works and through their own offerings. But the Christian gospel teaches that God is the one who initiates reconciliation with the world he created. He does this while the world is still in rebellion against him and is undeserving of his mercy because of that sin. Sin that puts a wall of enmity between him and the men and women he created. I mean, that, that bothers a lot of people, even in so-called Christian circles. That somehow that there was this enmity between us and God before Christ came. But if, he, if it wasn't an enmity, Christ wouldn't need to have come. He came because there was a conflict, there was a wall, and whether we recognized it or not, it was there. And a lot of the people that we know who are not believers in Christ, that's exactly the truth. It's there. They don't even know it's there. I didn't know it was there until the day that Christ touched my heart so I could see it. But for Paul, sin is not simply defined as acts or even guilt. Oftentimes we simplify the word to mean that. 
an act that we've committed, the feeling of guilt that we have, certainly that's part of the meaning. But as one com commentator aptly describes, it is about the guilt and power of evil that has taken up residence in the human heart. That's much different than just one act or guilt. If you listen to anyone preaching from this pulpit at Grace Covenant, you will certainly hear an emphasis on grace. In fact, sometimes I think we've been accused of preaching one message all the time, and that is the gospel of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. But that is the message. <laughs> but you'll hear that from this pulpit. It doesn't matter whether it's Dennis or Camper or myself or Ben or anyone else that comes here. That's what you'll hear. If you listen to us and you hear in the message of grace that somehow God or we take sin lightly, then you haven't heard it correctly. We must never underestimate sin's idolatrous hold on our hearts and the depths of our need, not just in the past when we were delivered from, from, from it in Christ, but now, today, this hour, this afternoon, tomorrow, the day after. It is that idolatrous hold that makes grace necessary. God paid a steep price to purchase our reconciliation. Nothing less than the death of his only son, as we've sung about this morning, and we talked about what we sang, the power of the cross. As Paul wrote in the chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians, he made him who did not know sin to be sin in order that we might become the righteousness of Christ. Through this great exchange, our transgressions, our sins are not counted against us if we're united to Christ in faith. That's how God dealt with this problem of sin and reconciled the world to himself. It's how he broke down the barrier of enmity and conflict that exists between himself and the world. We become so identified with Christ that we actually become the righteousness of God in him. Now, that doesn't mean that we are made personally righteous as if we'll never be touched by sin again or able to be righteous on our own account. That just doesn't happen. That's not the theology behind Paul's statement that we become the righteousness of God. Rather, we are completely, judicially, and instantaneously declared righteous. We are justified. That's what that word is all about. But then, through the, the spirit-directed process of sanctification, we must increasingly become what we already are declared to be. God declares us righteous in Christ. We are the righteousness of Christ. Not because we become righteous, and then we have to then ask forgiveness for all the things we do after that point because, and keep the count short as if there was some sort of account ledger that God was keeping. He looks at us and he sees us as righteous in Christ, not in our own righteousness, never. We'll never be righteous in our own account. But he declares us righteous. And we will never understand reconciliation and we'll never understand the extravagant grace it demonstrates until we understand the reality of sin in our own hearts. The times when I feel closest to God, the times when I feel connected to him or empowered by him are the times when I've recognized the depths of my own idolatry and the depths of my own sin. So you really never understand the power of grace until you understand the power of evil in our hearts. The, awesome, the awareness of our sin doesn't cause us to ignore it as if the act of reconciliation has completely removed it from us. 
nor does it cause us to pursue obedience as a means to God's blessing or to justify ourselves before God. Rather, the awareness of our continued struggle with the remnants of sin in our hearts, in spite of the declared deliverance from sin's penalty of power, causes us to throw ourselves continually on Christ and the grace and mercy shown to us at the cross. That's what it does. And when we're not aware of our own sinful hearts and its inclination to idolatry, we tend not to want to cling to the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. It becomes that much more distant to us. It becomes maybe just a theological concept or a word. But when we realize the depths of our own struggles and we understand that is when we come to the cross because it's the only place we can go to find mercy and grace and deliverance and the power to live for him. Not only has God reconciled the world to himself in Christ, but Christ has entrusted the ministry of reconciliation to us. Think about that. In the context of this passage, Paul is arguing that the ministry of reconciliation has been entrusted to himself as an apostle and to his co-workers. That's the context. He's arguing to the Corinthian church because there is a little bit of a movement. The Corinthian church is a very troubled church. Think about it. Two of the Two of the books in the, in the New Testament, among with others, they're all written to letters. Letters are written to churches that are struggling with problems. Certainly the Corinthian church is the worst of these. And part of it, of what he's trying to do, is to help them to understand who he is and the message of the gospel that he's been given to proclaim. But as co-heirs with Christ and priests in God's kingdom, by extension, the ministry that had been given to Paul has now been entrusted to us. One must be reconciled before he or she can participate in a ministry of reconciliation. So it's only for people who know the Lord Jesus Christ and have been reconciled. But once we're reconciled and redeemed, it is clear that God's plan is to entrust to us, flawed and sinful as we are, his ongoing ministry of reconciliation to the world around us. God's reconciled people are the necessary instruments through which the world is reconciled to God. God ordains both the means and the ends of his redemptive work. And as an act of graciousness, he uses us as the means to accomplish his reconciling work. Could God do it differently? He probably could. But he chose not to do it differently. He chose to use us as his ministers of reconciliation in the world. I don't know about you, but that kind of heavy. <laughs> kind of uh, amazing to think about it, that what the apostles, what Christ entrusted to his apostles, and then what the apostles entrusted to the saints who came after them was nothing less than the ministry that Jesus Christ came on this earth to accomplish, and that is the reconciling work of the gospel. He doesn't need us, but he chooses to use us because it does good not only to the world, and it's not only the, I think, the method that he uses, like Daniel was talking about discipleship and people reaching one another and extending the kingdom of God, it's not only, it, it also blesses us and strengthens us in the process. Paul pictures it this way. He says, God has made us ambassadors for Christ. An ambassador is what? A representative messenger, an agent acting on behalf of and in the place of the sovereign power that he or she represents. Christ came on mission, representing the sovereign power and authority of God the Father. 
And after he completed his earthly mission, through his death and resurrection, he returned to the Father and he appointed his followers to act in his place. He has appointed you and me to act in his place as his ambassadors. Through the sharing of the gospel, testifying to what Christ has done for us, and the living out of that gospel, God speaks to the world, urging them to be reconciled to him. He speaks through us. Therefore, the message we carry isn't delivered in a detached, impersonal way. How can it be? The stakes are high. They're very high. Which should motivate us to deliver the message of reconcilia reconciliation with a sense of urgency in our hearts. The text uses the word, it's translated just various ways, but in, ES, in the English Standard Version, it's translated as imploring. And that's, that is the concept, that's the idea. Imploring. Because unless those who do not know Christ hear and come to faith, they will remain in a state of enmity with God and they will be lost, separated from him for all of eternity. Sometimes I just don't think I believe that. Because if I really did, it would definitely change the way I looked at those around me and how I lived and how I worked and how I played. Paul not only reminds us that God reconciled the world to himself in Christ and that Christ has entrusted the ministry of reconciliation to us, he wants us to know that the ministry of reconciliation is personal with universal impact. The work of reconciliation that Paul describes in this passage is immensely personal. Because salvation is immensely personal, is it not? God doesn't save us in mass. He saves us individually. He doesn't do it in one cookie-cutter way. If I asked uh, half a dozen of you to share how you came to know Christ, I guarantee you that there are probably half a dozen different ways in which God did that for you. He might have used a similar means, but he used a different subset of experiences and people and scripture and other influences in your life to bring, him, bring you to himself. However, Paul's use of the term world as the object of reconciliation is a reminder to us that while God works to reconcile individuals, the transformation of individual hearts, like ripples created in a pond by a stone, impacts the entire universe. That's how God is in the business of changing the world. He doesn't do it by writing things in the sky or delivering a message on TV. He does it by changing hearts. He does it by changing lives, one by one, and then those lives changing other lives. It's how he works in families, how he worked in my family. I was the first of the, of the siblings to come to know Christ. And then my parents came to know him. But as a result of the change and the conversion that happened in, in, our, in the lives of my brother and myself. That's how he, it's like a ripple. And it keeps extending outward. In Romans, Paul, Paul reminds us that the world has been groaning under the weight of sin since the, the fall of Adam and Eve. That's the picture. The, the entire creation in which we live, as beautiful as it is, it's groaning under the weight of sin. And while its restoration has begun through Christ's work on the cross, it will not be fully reconciled 
redeemed and restored until Christ's return. And one of the greatest shortfalls of the church is the failure to grasp that the biblical narrative isn't just one of many alternative stories that describe the world. It is the only true story of the world. There are a lot of competing stories out there, narratives of how the world was created and what it's for and what the purpose of human beings are. But, and in our culture, you know, if, to say that there's only one is kind of considered to be intolerant. I mean, that's, uh, it's a new definition of tolerance. I mean, tolerance used to be defined differently, but today it's defined as you have to believe everybody's true. Everybody's beliefs are true, which is crazy because it's impossible. I'd love those bumper stickers. Well, I really don't love them, but I, I, I don't like them. Those bumper sisters that, stickers that say coexist because they got all the little symbols of all the religious. You know, as a person who spent his life studying theology and dealing with other people from different theological traditions, which I did as an army chaplain all the time, every day, I can tell you that the people who have those stickers have no clue to what people who are religious believe. You know why I know that? Because if you get a Jewish person, a Hindu, a Buddhist, a Catholic, a Protestant, you name it, a Muslim, in the same room together who are true believers in their, in their religious faith, they are not going to say, we all believe in the same God and we all, can, you know, we all do things the same way. They just won't. It's only people who think that's an idealistic kind of pie-in-the-sky thing that do, that think that it's true. There's only one true story of the world, and it happens to be in God's word. In evangelical theology, we tend to focus on the trees of individual salvation, which is important, but we miss the forest of God's grand redemptive design. You know what I mean by that? Because we're always just focused, in evangelical theology, we're so focused on what God has done for me and the salvation I have that we forget that it's all part of a big story. We're part of that big narrative. I, I, when I came in this morning, came in a little early, so I was looking at the uh, By Faith magazine. And there happens to be a story in there, um, an interview with, a, with uh, two authors who wrote a book called Expanding Eden, Mankind's Mission in the Presence of God. And I was, uh, I've got the book, and I you know, started reading it, but it didn't dawn on me when I was reading it until uh, I read this this morning that it had a lot to do with what I was talking about. Um, and he it basically, they, are, they, they say in this article, and you can pick up Equip or you can get online and get it, that part of the church's task is extending God's presence until the end of the age. Think about that. That's why they mean about restoring Eden. In Eden, God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. He was there. There was a presence of God. And oh, by the way, I don't know if you ever thought about this, but Eden was just a test case. It wasn't the entire world. It was a small piece of God's world. And Adam and Eve basically were given a small piece, and God said, if you, fit, if you can do this, the idea is, if you can do this, then I'm going to extend it out to the rest of the world. But we know the story. It only took three chapters under the book of Genesis for it not to work. You think about that. Creation takes maybe two chapters. The fall takes one up to Genesis 3, the rest of the Bible, the book of Revelation, is all about God's redemption, to bring it all back. And Revelation is basically the, the, the picture of what that restored heaven and earth is going to be like. And that's why so much of the Bible is about the restoration of Eden, is what, how, they de how they describe it in their book. And that's what it is. That's the story. That God has come, he has, in the person of Christ, so that 
that he can begin through Christ to restore the world back to the way it originally was created and designed to be. Stone Street reminds us that the Bible is not, well, or not merely, a book about how to have a better life or how to handle life's problems. It is a book that explains the universe and how God is in the process of redeeming and restoring it to its original, good, true, and beautiful state. So much of what we hear in messages from you know, these days in the evangelical world is three steps to a better family, five steps to how, you know, and, and there's a place for that. I've been even guilty of preaching those kinds of sermons. But that's not what the Bible is, is really about. It, those principles come out of it. Yeah, sure, you know, otherwise we would be no different than the world, but it's primarily a story of God's redemptive purpose and how we fit into that. It's more than about the rescue of individual souls. Our redemption occurs as part of a grand redemptive story of the creation, the fall, the redemption, and restoration of all things that will culminate in a new heaven and a new earth. So, how do we live as ambassadors of reconciliation against the backdrop of God's redemptive plan? Well, just as our hostility against God showed itself in what we do, in our deeds, so our reconciliation will show itself in the works that God has already prepared for us to accomplish beforehand in the world. In addition to the proclamation of the gospel, which is certainly central to this idea of reconciliation and restoration, you've got to preach the message. You know, there's this kind of, and this came to my mind now because I've read it someplace in here during my preparation. There's a famous quote that's, uh, quoted from St. Francis of Assisi that probably was never spoken by St. Francis that said, you know, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. Well, that's a nice sentiment, but the fact of the matter is, unless you use words, you're not preaching the gospel. Because there's plenty of good people out there who do good things who have no clue of who Jesus Christ is and what he's done for them. And I'm sorry to say, the, they say, you know, there's a saying, right? The road to hell is paved with good intentions. But the fact of the matter is, the gospel has to be proclaimed. Certainly has to be lived out, and you'll see that. I'm, that's, gonna, that's my main point. But I don't want you to hear that point to the point of thinking, well, that's all I have to do. I don't have to proclaim. No, you have to say. Somehow it has to be a connection with what you do to what you believe. Has to be. So in addition to the proclamation of the gospel, Stone Street proposes four questions. And that got, this is what got me thinking about this. I was at a conference three, week, three weeks ago now where Stone Street was speaking uh, the morning devotionals, and he gave these four questions, and I listened to him, and, I, and, he, and he mentioned the word reconciliation, and clicked on my, my mind that 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is what I was going to preach on this Sunday. He says, these four questions can serve as guides for our work of reconciliation and restoration in the world. And then I want to share them with you and just briefly describe them, and then we'll be done. The first question is, what is good in our culture that we can promote, protect, and celebrate? What is good in our culture that we can promote, protect, and celebrate? With all the brokenness around us created by sin and its consequences, it's easy to forget that God created the world good. That's why I probably shouldn't listen to the evening news. But. And that even after the fall, a lot of that goodness and beauty still remains. You don't believe it? We sang this morning the gift of voice and song and music 
is a part of the creation. In fact, in C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia book, that's how the world is created, by God singing a song. I don't know if you read that, but and I think that's kind of the picture there. So there's lots of good, even after the fall, and a lot of beauty remains. And as believers in whatever our respective areas of influence are, we should be looking for ways to strengthen what remains. We should be looking for ways to promote, protect, and celebrate the good, the beautiful, and the just in our families, our communities, our churches, our places of work, and in the nation in which we live. So think about it. Everybody, no matter what you're calling in life, look for ways to protect, promote, celebrate that which is good and that which is beautiful in the world. The, the second question is, what is missing in our culture that we can creatively contribute? The biblical worldview affirms that humans are created in the image of God, and part of that image involves our innate creativity. I know some of you are thinking you don't have a creative bone in your body. I, 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 think, that, I think that way sometimes too, but creativity is not just about the things we normally think about, not just the arts and music and those kinds of things. In every legitimate human endeavor, Christians should look for what is missing in our culture and find ways to offer it. We should encourage Christians in the arts, certainly. That's what we think of mostly when we think of creativity. But creativity isn't limited to artists. Teachers look for ways to educate more effectively and have a greater impact on their students. Research scientists look for cures for diseases that afflict us as a result of the fall. Businessmen and businesswomen look for products and services to improve the quality of our lives. Whatever you're calling in life, it has redemptive significance if you put it and connect the dots. Sometimes we don't do that. We just sort of put ourselves on autopilot as if there's a spiritual side, we live, you know, spiritual side, material side, whatever our calling in life is, whether it's a, whether it's a stay-at-home mom or it's a research scientist, we, we don't connect the dots to see that part of our calling in life is to be redemptively creative. The third thing is, what, in the, what is evil in our culture that we can counter? Well, there is good in the world. We must never forget that we are in a spiritual war as real and as deadly as any physical war could be. Christians should courageously stand against that which destroys and deceives, and there is much in this world that destroys and deceives, and, if we, and in our areas of influence again, it is important for us to be engaged in standing for what is good and true. It is more than, it's about more than being right. I mean, if the world just sees us about, concerned about being right, then, then they have every reason to turn themselves off. So it's not like we're trying to win an argument, you know. It's not like we're, not a, not a argument for the sake of argument, you know. I think the world sometimes sees us. I think Christians just always want to just be right. It's not about being right. It's about understanding the story in which God is has given to us to share. Countering evil is, in fact, a requirement of loving our neighbors. If you want to know what it means to love your neighbor, then, then, then countering evil is part of that. You cannot love your neighbor and ignore the evil in the world, especially if it's someplace in, in which you have influence. Sure, you don't have influence, like I don't have influence over the grand evil in the world. We just don't. But certainly on our, in each one of our lives, we have a certain area in which we can counter evil. If no place else, to start with our own hearts. And finally, he says, ask yourself, what is broken in our culture that we can restore? 
Stone Strait and Cole write, ultimately, we reflect the gospel most clearly when what has been damaged by sin is restored to God's intended purpose. For example, recently, just by a narrow majority of the Supreme Court, they handed down a ruling that redefines the nature of marriage. Now, no matter what the Supreme Court says, it doesn't change the definition of marriage in the way God looks at it. We know that. It changes it for our culture and our society in certain contexts. So how can the church restore what is broken when the culture seems intent on denying the truth of God? We do it by recapturing and strengthening the truth in our churches, in our families, by teaching and living out a clear and, and biblical theology of singleness, marriage, and family, even while admitting our own failures in those same areas. Over the years, my uh, daughters have often debated with me or talked with me about, Dad, why don't the church do more about this? And what the this was, was why don't we talk more about a theology of singleness and, and marriage and things like that? We rarely hear that in the church. We rarely hear it from the pulpit. We rarely hear it in other contexts. And I just shrug my shoulders and say, well, you know, I don't know why we don't do it. We probably should. There's so many things we should be doing. But clearly, in this area, for example, what, the way you counter it, the way you counter those people around you who are, who are bent on denying the truth about, about marriage and family is by making sure that in your family and in the church, with repentance and, and, uh, and faith for the things where you have fallen short, not with haughtiness or pride, but with a sense of we know the story, that we live that out for them, and that we become a haven of healing and reconciliation for the broken refugees of the coming failed sexual revolution because it's going to happen, because people are looking for something else other than God to fill their soul, and when they find out that it doesn't, they're going to end up on your doorstep. They may not end up at the church's doorstep, but they may end up on yours. Your neighbors, your coworkers, your friends, your families, they'll end up there. And just like we've been doing on the abortion issue for decades, and by the way, I think we're winning, because I think the younger generation, statistics say, are more pro-life than our generation was. And that's because we've been doing it the right way, I think, by trying to model it, by being compassionate, by being helpful to those in crisis pregnancy situations, and by just teaching the plain truth of the gospel. And it's gotten through to some folks, because it makes sense, because it's the way the world was created. In the end, God is still on the throne. And I cheated. I read the end of the story. Okay? Guess what? God wins. God loves rewords. He does. They are gifts from God to remind us of the true state of our world. It's fallen, but it's redeemed. And why we are here. To be agents of restoration, reconciliation. God reconciles us in Christ so that we might be participants in God's great reconciling work in the world. God reconciles us to become reconcilers. I don't know about you, but that's exciting if I think about it. That God reconciles me, he reconciles you through the, through the gospel so that you might become reconcilers for the world. We're not here to huddle in holy enclaves. Maybe the evangelical world has been guilty of doing that early on in the 60s and 50s. 
holding down the fort until Jesus comes. I don't know how many times I've probably prayed that way. Lord, it's such a mess. Why don't you just come, you know? Just... And neither are we to capitulate to the world's measures of success, which is, I think the church has done, whether it's wealth and health and success. And so much of the gospel in this country has been preached about. One of the things that you, know, you hear Dennis talk about he hates is the, is the health, wealth, prosperity gospel, but it doesn't just stay there. It seeps everywhere to the church. But somehow, the gospel is about success. If you are, if you are a Christian, you're going to be successful. Well, I don't think that's true where, where Daniel was this week, last week. There are a lot of people who are Christians who probably aren't very successful by the world's standards. But. So in Street and Cold, they summarize it well. They say, but Christ's followers are to see the world differently and have a different posture toward it. Rather than safety from or capitulation to the world, the grand narrative of Scripture describes instead a world we are to live for. Not to be against, and not to be part of, but to live for. Difference. They go on to say, this, world's, this world, Scripture proclaims, belongs to God. Even though it doesn't know. This world belongs to God, who then entrusted it to his image bearers. He created it good, and he loves it still. Despite its brokenness and frustration, he has a plan for it yet and invites the redeemed to live redemptively for its good and our flourishing even as we live for him. And that's what the gospel is about. God saves us. He reconciles us to himself, but he wants to use us to expand the garden back to its original intent. It's not going to be completely done until he comes but it's the work he's given us to do so that we might rescue those like we've been rescued who are so desperately in need of hearing that God has nothing against them anymore because of what he's done for them on the cross of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for your word and for the truths that are there. And sometimes... There are things that we hear, and we hear them again, but it just takes sometimes a work of your spirit to, to move our hearts to say, yes, Lord, I hear it, but I want to act on it in a way I haven't acted on it before. I pray, Lord, that you would give us insight into your scriptures, insight into your word, and through the power of your spirit, help us to do as we close, to live redemptively for the good and flourishing of the world, but even for our own good, as we live for Christ. For we ask it in his name. Amen.